The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So I want to ask you a couple of questions that you've probably already thought about and you have a good idea about, but think about this just for a minute. Um, If you could live anywhere in the world, no matter how unrealistic, no matter if your your checkbook, your pocketbook could afford it right now, um, where would you live if you could live anywhere in the world? Oregon? Oregon? Wow. We heard Italy this weekend. I've not heard Oregon, but I trust you love it. Um, I have never been to Oregon. That just seems like the place just chock full of white people to me. Like, <laughs> like there is more, like over, it's all green and white people in Oregon. Okay, so that's where you would live if you could live anywhere. Just think about if any car that you could drive, like your dream car, if you could have any car in the world. So like mine would be a Tesla. Like if I, if, if I could afford it and wouldn't be embarrassed that I could afford it, that would be the car that I would drive. But think now about like your dream house. What would your dream house be like? So there was a time when uh, our family watched a lot of HGTV and our favorite show on HGTV was House Hunters, you know, where a couple looks at three different houses and the secret of that show is that they've already bought one of those houses, but you're just trying to figure out which one they bought. And like every show is like the same. It's like Susie is a kindergarten teacher and Brad is a grad student who sells homemade flip-flops on the weekend. Can realtor Heather help them find a house for their budget of $1.5 million? And you're like, what am I doing wrong? Like one of our favorite shows, we used to watch House Hunter. My wife really liked this. Um, I think it was like my dream lotto house. And it was people who won the lottery and they were shopping for a new house. And they would look at all of these houses, people who just won all of this money and they're shopping for the, and inevitably they would pick like the most gaudy golden toilet, you know, like Caesar's palace kind of house. Or the opposite of that was they'd pick a place and you go, that's what you picked? Like you won the lottery? And I think about that because my guess is the reason that it probably wasn't too hard for you to think about where you would live if you could live anywhere, or what kind of car you would drive, or what your dream house is like, is that somewhere along the line, all of us have fantasized about what our life would be if we won the lottery. Like if money was no object, if we could have anything, we could go anywhere, we could live any place, all of us dream about that. But we don't dream about that, we don't think about that as much as we think something else. And this is so pervasive in our culture, it's almost everywhere all the time, is that most of us don't really believe that we're one day going to win the lottery and we largely don't believe that because most of us don't play the lottery. But what we do believe at a deep level is that my life would be better 
all of my anxiety would decrease and my joy and happiness would increase. Not if I won the lottery, but if I just had a little bit more. That all I need really is just a little more. And you don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to make a confession. I know what's in my heart, and I've talked to enough people over the years to know what's in most of our hearts, is that we think things would be better if we just had a little bit more. So if you've been around Ecclesia the last several weeks, you know that we are in a series um, looking at and listening to voices from our culture. Uh, The things in our culture that are sending us messages, and some of those really need to be interrogated and critiqued. And some of them need to be highlighted. It's a really good thing. And so last summer, my wife Rochelle and I stumbled across this movie that I absolutely loved. And it's called All the Money in the World. And All the Money in the World tells the story of John Paul Getty III. It actually tells the story of the kidnapping of John Paul Getty III. Uh, He was 16 years old and he was kidnapped in Italy, and he was held for ransom. Now, this was 1973, and when he was kidnapped, his grandfather, J. Paul Getty, John Paul Getty, the original, was the richest man in the world. And so the kidnappers ransomed him for $17 million. And at the time, J. Paul Getty, his grandfather, was worth $1.2 billion. And they wanted $17 million. So $1.2 billion in today's money would be about $9 billion. And if you have $1.2 billion and someone asks for $17 million, I'm not great at math, but that comes to roughly about 1.7% of your total wealth. And so just to make those numbers a little bit easy, Suppose you earn $50,000 a year. 1.7%, if your child, your grandchild, was ransomed for 1.7% of your total net worth, that would be about $840. So they're asking J. Paul Getty for $840, 1.7%. And he says, no. And on one level, his thinking makes a lot of sense because they asked for $17 million and he told the media, he says, I have 14 grandchildren. If I pay one ransom, that means 13 other kidnappings. But that wasn't all of his motivation. He had a deeper and maybe even more sinister motivation. I want you to watch this clip. They will do things to Paul that cannot be undone for any amount of money. We have to pay. This simply isn't possible. My financial position has changed. Really? I mean, 30 seconds ago, you said it was a good day. I mean, I'm not all that bright, but I can multiply as well as you. With oil up as much as it was this morning, you have amassed another fortune. Well, what if the embargo is lifted and oil were to crash? I'd be exposed. I have never been more vulnerable financially than I am right now. Mr. Getty, with all due respect, nobody has ever been richer than you are at this moment. 
I have no money to spare. What would it take? I mean, what would it take for you to feel secure? More. There is a sin that Christians used to talk about a lot. It's fallen out of favor um, in the last century or so, and we all understand the reason why, because no one wants to talk about it, but it's the sin of avarice. And a lot of people have tried to turn avarice into simple greed. It's actually one of the seven deadly sins, but avarice is much more than greed. Avarice is being too attached to money, to possessions, and caring too much about them. And it's the caring too much part that's really important because like a lot of idolatry, the thing itself is usually pretty good. But it's when you cross the line, when we cross the line to caring too much about something, that's when it becomes avaricious. That's when we become avaricious, when we want it too much. And avarice at the bottom, avarice says more that what you need is more. What you deserve is more. Avarice says, what's mine is mine, and anything that I could possibly want should also be mine. I need more. So if you're familiar with the Bible, You'll know in Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, and the prodigal son partly is a story of avarice when the son comes to his father and he says, Father, um, I want my inheritance now. I know I'm supposed to wait for you to die, but everything that you've provided, everything that we have is not enough. I want more. And here's the sticky thing when you begin to talk about avarice and money and greed is that nobody thinks that they're rich. We all know who else is rich, but nobody thinks that they're rich. Because if I were rich, I would live, and if I were rich, I would drive, and if I were rich, my house would be. Hardly any of us think that we're rich, and that's part of the problem, because when we don't understand where we are, what we have, that actually opens up the door to avarice, because it makes it okay for us to constantly and constantly and constantly crave more. When we don't know that we're rich, it's okay to want more. And as Christian people, followers of Jesus, if we really believe that we are provided for, that we are sustained by Jesus, then one of the questions that we ought to ask ourselves is how much is enough? How much is enough? And no one in the world can answer that question for you. You see, avarice always wants more. Because avarice isn't about money. And when money comes up, when greed comes up, people who have done well in business or maybe they've inherited money, they start to feel a little bit self-conscious but avarice isn't about money. Avarice is about security and feeling secure 
And if I only had, if I only owned, then I would feel secure. Because avarice is deadly. It's one of the seven deadly sins because it deceives us into believing that if we had a little bit more, if we could keep a little bit more, then we would be secure. So about 12 years ago, um, I knew a guy who was in his 60s. He worshiped with us at the time. And he had been diagnosed with a really aggressive form of cancer. But there was some hope. There was a treatment available to him that could possibly work, but maybe not. But it was going to be really painful and really hard. And he was getting toward the end of his career. He had been a vice president at Merrill Lynch and done extraordinarily well. And so he invited me to come to his office one day. We're going to have lunch and talk. And I remember going up to his office and he was introducing me to his whole team. And at that time, if you wanted to invest money with him, you needed to invest, you had to invest at least $5 million. So he had done really well. And he was telling me that he really didn't know what he was going to do. His children were grown and we were sitting there at lunch. And he said, Sean, the thing is, I've had a really good life. And if I'm going to take this treatment, it might work, but it might not. And if I'm only going to live for one more year, I don't want to be in pain. And he asked me what I thought he should do. And I was all of like 32 at the time and had absolutely no clue. And he said, well, the good thing is, um, I have a lot of money. I can have any treatment in the world. I can afford any treatment in the world. And that's the good thing about money, is it gives you options. And when we're being honest, isn't that what we really want? Options. We want to be able to secure our future, not against necessarily what's likely to happen, but anything that could ever possibly happen. And that's a very human, very natural response to a world that is chaotic and up and down to secure our future. But it's one of those places in life where we have to be really wise. Because Jesus talks about this very thing, about securing our future. And so in Luke 12, he tells a story. And, and he begins it like this. He begins it with a teaching and then gets into the story, which is kind of the opposite of the way that Jesus usually does things. This is what he says. You better be on guard against any type of greed. For a person's life is not about having a lot of possessions. Jesus says, a person's life is not about having a lot of possessions and we are not convinced. We do not believe Jesus. And, and the reason that we are not convinced isn't because we think Jesus is wrong. We think Jesus is right about this. The reason we're not convinced is because we don't know what a lot is. We don't know what a lot is because we have never asked 
What's enough? And if you don't know, whatever it is for you, whatever stage of life you're in, whatever trial you're going through, because it can't possibly be universal, if you don't know what enough is, you can never know what a lot is. But we all know who a lot is, we all know who has a lot, and that is always somebody else. So last year, um, my car died and I had to get a new car. And so in our family, we just have this unwritten rule, like we drive, we will drive a car until the wheels fall off, like until it just can't be driven anymore. And so I had this Honda CRV that I had inherited from my wife when she got a new car several years before that, when my car died. And because I'm a good husband, I always take the rattiest car. And so I had to buy a new car. And if I could have any car in the world, I would get a Tesla. But I'm not really in a position to have any car in the world. And so what I got was a used Toyota Prius. And I'm gonna tell you something. I love this car. And I know I'll only love it for a little while until it starts giving me trouble and then I will hate it. But right now I love it. And two weeks ago, I'm driving home and I'm sitting in this car and I'm thinking about this wonderful, beautiful 42 miles a gallon that I'm getting in this car and how I want to tell everyone. And then I thought, I shouldn't like this car. It's a rough ride. Don't tell the people at Toyota, this isn't a bad review. It's a rough ride. It's hard plastic. The seats are cloth, like the iPhone jack, you have to kind of mess around with it to get it to work just right sometimes. But I like this car. And for some reason, for me, right now, it's enough. And that's a big deal for me. Because I remember the days of watching my mother break open my father's penny bank to count out money so my brother could go on a field trip. And I think he needed $5. And I remember sitting in our living room when I was in high school and watching the tow truck pull up to the house and hook up our car and drive it away, repossess it because we couldn't afford the payments. And so issues like that about having enough, like those are big deals for me. And I bet for many of you, those are big deals. But there is such a thing as a lot of possessions. And you will never know if you have a lot of possessions until you know what's enough. Jesus goes on. Then beginning another parable, Jesus says, a wealthy man owned some land that produced a huge harvest. He often thought to himself, I have a problem. I don't have anywhere to store all of my crops, which is a universal problem. Don't we all have that problem? That we're all thinking all the time, I don't have enough space to keep all the stuff. What should I do, he says. I know, I'll tear down my small barns 
where I've been housing all of the stuff and build even bigger ones. And then I'll have plenty of storage space for my grain and all my other goods. Then I'll be able to say to myself, I have made it. I can relax and take it easy for years. So I'll just sit back, eat, drink, and have a good time. That's what we tell ourselves. I'm saving up, I'm storing up for some really good things. And so are you. Like there are some really good things that you need to save up. You're not gonna work your entire life. Your kids are eventually gonna have to go to college. Like there, there's a point where you need to have small barn. What Jesus is after is do you really need to build a bigger barn? And he says, one day I'll be able to sit back and relax. One day I'll have enough. One day I'll have enough. But maybe you're like me. And enough keeps moving. You remember when you were a kid? How much was enough when you were a kid? Like ice cream money, that's all, that was enough when I was a kid. Like that's probably the last time I really trusted God for my daily bread when I was a kid. Like I had enough money when the man came in the van with a little song playing, like that was enough. Like I would go and I would give him for my ice cream crack and everything would be good. That was enough. When I left college, I left college with student debt and a bean bag. And that was enough. Do you remember when you first started out? A small apartment with hardly any furniture in it. Cold pizza. Bumming meals off people. That was enough. What's enough now? How many square feet does the house have to be? How high do the ceilings have to be? Does this car have seat warmers? Because I need those living in Houston, Texas. (laughs) Or what my youngest daughter just calls butt warmers. Enough keeps moving. Jesus finishes this way. He says, then God interrupted the man, the man's conversation with himself. Excuse me, Mr. Brilliant, but your time has come. Tonight, you will die. Now, who will enjoy everything you've earned and saved. So this is something important for you to know. Almost all the wisdom in the Bible is rooted in one fact. So you read your Bible from cover to cover and all the wisdom teachings that are in scripture are rooted fundamentally 
and one fact. You're going to die. And what would you do knowing that God is God and you're going to die? And Jesus says we have spent so much of our time, so much of our energy, trying to secure the future for ourselves and we never deal with the reality that the future is not ours to secure. One of the ultimate acts of faithlessness, one of the ultimate acts of faithlessness is to believe that your future is yours to take care of. The future belongs to God. And so all of the ups and downs that I had in my life, particularly in my childhood, one of the people that I continue to turn to for wisdom is my mother. And knowing the whole arc of the story, and this is something that she has to say to me over and over and over again. She will say whenever I am anxious about something or nervous, she will remind me, and she will say, Sean, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. So the question for you is when is enough enough? And absolutely no one can answer that question for you. Only you know, and only you can know. But I wanna give you five suggestions to think about avarice. And they're not, there's nothing magical about any of these. There is stuff I came up with, wisdom I picked up from other people, things that challenge me. I'm gonna give you five suggestions, and after that, I'm gonna leave you with three questions to ask yourself. So the first suggestion is just to cut it off at the root. Um, here's how I know that I am trending towards securing my future with possessions and money is when I start to watch YouTube videos of Amazon reviews of things. Because <laughs> this is my mechanism for girding up to decide why I desperately need this thing that I didn't know existed two hours ago. But what if you just didn't do that? What if you, you didn't look at flyer? What if you didn't go window shopping? What if you just cut it off at the root? So I'm not gonna participate in things that will make me fundamentally avaricious, that make me crave more. Two, get accountable. And this is a wonderful place where small groups of people or a small group can be helpful for you. Um, who have you given permission to speak into your life about your spending and your consumption? So when I was in college, I was part of a, a small prayer group. There were six of us. We are all still extraordinarily close. We have a years-long text thread. We talk to each other every day. And there was a point where we just decided to covenant together that none of us would ever spend over $100 without clearing it with the group. Now, some of you will spend $100 this afternoon on lunch. And so that might not fit for you. But who... Have you given permission to ask you, do you really need that? 
Is, is that in concert with who you say you want to be? You can also take a Sabbath from consumerism. Like after you put gas in your car and food on the table, it really is possible just to not buy anything else. You can just not shop. You cannot consume. You wouldn't be the first person who's ever done this. To say, I'm gonna take three months or six months or a year and I'm not buying any new clothes. I'm not buying any new shoes. Please, you know, get toothpaste and cut your hair because we don't want you showing up like that. But the other things you actually don't have to do. Now, I don't have to buy clothes for me, but I have two children at home who outgrow everything in about eight weeks and I have to for them. So you can't have hard and fast rules, but you can have wisdom about what's actually needed. You can also tithe into the Christian center is this idea of generosity that you really aren't sustained and provided for by the sweat of your own brow, that everything that comes to you is a gift and that God asks you to give back a portion of it. And he says, take 10% of what comes into you and give it back. That puts you in a position of generosity all of the time. And then worship. Because avarice and greed are not fundamentally about money and possessions. They are acts of worship. And it's not that we worship money and possessions. We worship a future image of ourselves. And we put that at the center of all that we do. And those are just five suggestions. Pick one of those and just work with it for a while. But as you're doing that, I wanna give you three questions. The first, is how much time do I spend thinking about money? How much of your daily life is consumed with making money, spending money, saving money, having more? How much of your thought life and your energy is possessed by that? If you're like me, it's probably more than you'd wanna admit to. The second question, if I had more money, whose life would that make better? Like, is that just for me? Just so I can have the new car, the new thing, the new phone, whatever it is? What would I do with that? So the fundamental teaching of the New Testament, what heaven is all about is that God has created a community of people that he can trust with great things. And he says, Jesus says, that those who are faithful with little will be made faithful with much. And maybe one of the more haunting questions that we can ask ourselves is, am I the kind of person that God could trust with more? And the last question, the third question, is what excuses am I making about my desire for money, my spending, my consumerism, and my consumption? One of the great human, one of the great superpowers of human beings is that we lie to ourselves. I think we do that to get through the day sometimes. But what lies are we telling about how much we're consuming, how much we need, how much we're using? Do we really believe 
that life would be better if we had just a little more? Because the opposite of avarice isn't poverty. The opposite of avarice is contentment. That this really is enough. And one of my favorite books of the Bible is Ecclesiastes. Um, because I feel like the writer of Ecclesiastes um, knows everything that I struggle with. And this is what he says. Better with one handful of quiet, tranquility, peacefulness. Better with one handful of contentment than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. He says, again, I saw vanity under the sun, the case of solitary individuals without sons or daughters, no one to pass it on to, no intent to pass it on. Yet there is no end to their toil and their eyes, their eyes are never satisfied with riches. For whom am I toiling, they ask, and depriving myself of pleasure. This, he says, is an unhappy business. So if you were to come to me and say, Sean, how can I guarantee that I will be unhappy the rest of my life? I would say this, always want more. And this is opposed to Jesus Christ, who the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but lowered himself. And by doing so, ensured that from today and every day moving forward, our future is entirely secure. Ecclesia, let me pray for you. God, would you deepen our sense of contentment and let us celebrate and have joy in the ways that you have provided for us and that you have loved us and called us into a life without lack. And may we see your fingerprints everywhere we turn to celebrate all that you have given us and be people who live deeply into the contentment that only comes with resting in you. And we ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.